Well, if you guys have your Bibles with you this morning, and, uh, and I hope you do, um, please turn to Acts chapter 4. And while you're turning there, uh, I want to say something about the Bible and about something that we've got coming up in November. Uh, the people of God are a people of the book. That has been true since the beginning. I mean, when we're studying the book of Acts, we're studying the guys who wrote the book, at least the New Testament part of the book, by which we live. We live by the book, which is the Bible. It's the word of God to us. It feeds our souls. It changes our lives. It is the primary way that the spirit of God communicates with us as his people. It's just undeniable. I want to offer you the opportunity to do something that will change the way you read the book forever. And that is to go to the land of the book. I've had the privilege of leading two, tri- two trips. This would be the third with Dr. Warren Gage. Uh, Dr. Gage is an Old Testament professor at Knox Seminary up the street. He's one of my best buddies. Uh, he's kind of a mentor to me in a lot of ways. He's dean of faculty and all kinds of credentials. But beyond that, he's just an awesome guy and an incredible Bible teacher. And we go and we co-lead the trip together. And, you know, it's really cool. It's nice that I'm there. It's awesome that he's there. <laughs> And those of you who have been on the trip with us, and many of you have, it's awesome that he's there and you know exactly what I mean by that. We would love to be able to take you on that trip. It's coming up in November. There's a table in the back and after the service, you can go check it out and learn about the price and all that business. Um, but it's an investment in your spiritual education. That's the most important education that you can get. All right, if you've been with us at all this year, then you know that we've been spending our time together developing this big idea that life for the believer in Jesus is mission. And you know as well that by life, I mean not just every moment of our lives, though I do mean that. So life is mission is not, God, I give you an hour and 15 minutes on Sunday. Life is mission is, no, God, I'm yours. I mean, it's just like, it's all yours. I'm in. It's every moment of our everyday lives, but it's also every category of life. And it's been interesting as we've been traveling through this study of the book of Acts, this book that Luke has written and in which he gives us a picture of the early church, these people who learned to live life as mission 2,000 years before us and leave us a marvelous, incredible, and frankly challenging example. It's been interesting to see how many categories have come up. So we've said, for example, that marriage is mission. And I use that as sort of a teaching tool so that you understand what I mean when I go to all of these other categories. What I mean when I say that marriage's mission is I mean that we, as believers in Christ, as followers of Jesus, as people of the book, need to learn by the power of His Spirit to do, or do marriage differently than the rest of the world does. Marriage is fundamental to human life and society. And the world needs to be able to look at this community within it called Christians and to see that, wait wait a minute, these guys do it differently than us and the way that we do it isn't working. What happens when they see that we do it differently is they come to us and say, all right, I'm failing. At some point, I'm broken enough to admit that even to you. Tell me about the difference. And then we get to say, you know what? The difference is not me. The difference isn't my wife or the difference isn't my husband. The difference is that Jesus Christ has claimed me. The difference is that by his spirit, he's brought me into a relationship with God. That by his blood, he has forgiven me of a lot. He has forgiven me of the infinite demerit, if you will, of all of my sin. And he's teaching me little by little to be a forgiving person. Now, wait a minute. That's helpful in a marriage. 
And by his spirit and through his word, he's shaping and forming me after the image of his son, one whose character includes such things as love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. And listen, I have not arrived. And there are times that I am unloving and impatient and, and, you know, all of these other things and chaos rules instead of peace. But I'm growing in my relationship with Christ. And I'm growing also with the community that he's given me because I don't grow by myself. He makes me a part of a body who help me treasure and grow in my relationship with Jesus. And you need to know that if my marriage looks any different than yours, it's not because we're any less broken. It's because of the difference and the healing that Christ is making in our lives. So marriage then becomes what? Not just something that we do by the book for our own personal benefit, though it is personally hugely beneficial, but it's something that becomes a platform that we get to step up onto and say, okay, you want to know the difference? Jesus. He's the difference. That's how it works. And so we've said marriage is mission and parenting is mission and business is mission and reputation is mission. Last week we got together and saw the beginnings of suffering for the gospel at least by the apostles. And we said, you know what? Even suffering is mission. Suffering, too, is not something that we go out looking for. It's not something we pray, oh, Lord, please bring some suffering into my life so that I can tell more people about you. You know, it's not something we go out and chase down. But when it does come to us, it does come to us from the hand of a sovereign God who's in charge of all things. And it's something that we need to see differently than the rest of the world. And it's something we need to treat differently than the rest of the world. And it's something we need to do differently than the rest of the world. Because when we suffer differently, the world, which also suffers, notices. And we get to then say, you know, the difference, <laughs> it's not me. I, I'm, not, I'm not too hot, truthfully. But the difference is Jesus. Life is mission. And that includes every category. And today, as we continue our study of the book of Acts, we come to another category. Today, we come to the category of money. We come to the category of possessions. We come to the category of treasure. Call it whatever you want. That's sort of the topic that we come to next as Luke is just developing this life as mission theme in us and challenging us in all of these different categories of life. We come to this and what we see today is that we need to value it differently. We need to handle it differently. We need to use it differently. We need to cling to it Don't miss this differently than the rest of the world does. And more than ever this week, the power of the way we use or don't use money in mission has really come home to me. And I hope it comes home to you. The big idea for today is that life is mission and that includes our money. We pick up our study this morning in Acts chapter 4, beginning in verse 32, where Luke says this. He says, now the full number of those who believe, and I want to just pause here and tell you that's probably twenty to 25,000 people. Now hear that, because we're in chapter 4. That is stunning. Like the Christian church is just getting going, and it's twenty to 25,000 strong in chapter 4. What's happening in this city of Jerusalem? What's happening is that the Christian gospel is just roaring through the city like a wildfire. And why? Because the Spirit is working a life as mission idea into the lives of these people, and that includes very emphatically the way they view and use and treat their possessions. 
It's exactly what we see next. It says now the full number of those who believed were what? Because it's a really important little term of art. They were of one heart and soul. So they were not a detached people, they were an attached people. They were not a disconnected people, they were a connected people. They were not a group of people, you know, sort of a a bunch of individuals, a collection of individuals who gathered together in one place in one church because, you know, it's the one that they liked the best, but then splintered back out into the community and did life on their own for the rest of the week, separate and apart from one another. It's a very different vision. These people are coming together as a body. That's the analogy the New Testament gives us with each individual person being a part of the body. They do life together. They function effectively only together. They need one another. And when one part of the body hurts, the rest of the body throws in, man, and helps out. And that's exactly what happens. He says, now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. That's key. And so then as a result, no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And what I want you to see is that that's what the gospel allows us to do. And the reason I want you to see that is because that's Luke's message here. That's what he wants everybody to see. See, that little phrase, one heart and soul, was a key phrase in his day. We don't really recognize it, but they would have recognized that Luke took that straight out of the Greek philosophers, out of Aristotle, for example, who talks about how to live, or even if it's possible to live, with somebody as one heart and soul. And he says, look, if that's possible, here's one of their prerequisites. You must be economic equals if you're going to live as one heart and soul. And why is that? Because otherwise, there's this built-in tension in the relationship. Where the person who has more is just always waiting for the shoe to drop, man. When are they going to ask me for something? When are they going to ask me for something? When are they going to ask me for something? And so this person that I'm supposed to be in one heart and soul with, you know, is like a threat, if you will, to my stuff. And the person who has less is always tempted to do exactly that. And there's always this kind of awkwardness about why are they interested in me or why am I interested in them and... And what Luke is coming to us with is he's intentionally taking that little phrase and he's saying, hey, hey, what you need to understand is that what the philosophy of this world is incapable of allowing us to do, i.e. live as one heart and soul with one another, in a way that crosses social and economic strata, the gospel does. Think about the message of the gospel. What does the gospel say to high achievers? A lot of high achievers here today. What's the message of the gospel? Let's start with the message of our culture. What does our culture say to high achievers? The culture says to high achievers, you are totally awesome. Doesn't it? And let's just be honest. We want to know that we are totally awesome. Something within us wants to be told again and again, you are awesome, you are important, you are significant, you are valuable, you are awesome, you are important, you are significant, you are valuable, you are awesome, you are important, you are val... No, you miss significant. Yeah, you're significant and you are valuable. We love that. We feed off of that. We feast off of that. Our culture affirms and values and lifts up and applauds and worships those of us who are high achievers. That's just a fact. So then what's the temptation for high achievers? It's to find our identity in the worship of the culture. It's to find our self-worth and to derive it from the fact that everybody around us is at least modestly impressed. And don't think it's different for pastors, guys. Please don't. 
for all of the good things that we've imported into the church from the American business community, leadership principles, management principles, good grief do we pastors need to learn how to manage. No doubt. Great help. There are some things that have perverted the church, too, that we've imported, like the definition of success. Pastors struggle with this all the time. I mean, it's hard to have a conversation with another pastor. I mean, I'm like I'm sitting there jokingly thinking to myself, how long is it going to be before he says, how big is your church? (laughs) You know, and then when you tell them, they're either really impressed where you're going, hey, I'm important, I'm significant, I'm this, I'm that, or they pat you on the head like a little child. Oh, well, yes, I remember when we used to meet in a bathroom too, you know. (laughs) It's awful and it's insidious. And it's all of us. We either think we're great because the world says we're great, or we think we're dung because that's what the world says to low achievers. So the gospel comes to the high-achieving people and to the low-achieving people too. I'll get to you in a second. But it says to the high-achieving people, and it's good that we're all seated, including me. It says, here's the deal. Apart from the saving graces of Jesus Christ, you are, you ready? Nothing. Zip. Zero. And all of your accolades and all of your awards and all of your rewards and all of your power and all of your influence and all of the applause of all of the people around you who are oh so impressed with what you have, God is not impressed at all with. That is not impressive in the eyes of the Lord, whose eyes alone, if you think about it, are the only one that matters. What you need is Jesus. And what you need is to find your identity in Him, to ground your self-worth in Him, to trust in Him for your security and for your sustenance in this life. And when that begins to happen, what are you then free to do? You're free to start tearing down your bigger barns because, you see, if what you're really into is the significance of the world, if that's what's driving your self-image, then what are you going to do? You're going to hoard. You're going to keep. You're going to build bigger barns. You're going to buy more stuff. You're going to build this little kingdom of yours to as big of a kingdom as you can possibly build. Hopefully, it'll be built bigger than most people's kingdoms because you're hoping that everybody will notice. God's looking down from heaven, and he's like, man, I'm going to need to get a microscope out to see that little kingdom. Holy Toledo, Father and Son and Holy Spirit are coming way down to look at this. If Christ is your identity, if Christ is your security, if Christ is your sustenance, if Christ is the one from whom you derive your value and worth, you are free to be generous. Period. And if not, you're not. So that's what it says in the high achievers to the low achievers. It comes and it has a similar message. It says, in the saving graces of Jesus Christ, you're a child of the king. You are absolutely precious and infinitely valuable, no matter what your culture says or does to devalue you. In the eyes of the one who, well, whose eyes alone matter, wow, you are awesome. You're significant. You're important. You're valuable. You are all of these things that we all of us so long to be. See, what the gospel allows us to see is that we're all of us, in terms of our value, equal 
at the foot of the cross. And what it allows us to see also is that what's truly of value is Christ. And it allows us as well to begin to see one another as being infinitely valuable. Wait a minute, I'm infinitely valuable and you're infinitely valuable and you 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 and my goodness, you people are a lot more valuable than anything this world has to offer. So how could I not help you? Suddenly our brother's needs are not a threat and suddenly our brother's assets are not an opportunity. Changes the whole playing field. And so Luke says, you know, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And as a result, they lived in a way that was radically different from the rest of the world with regard to their wealth. No one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. Now you're going, my goodness, you know, that sounds like communism or something. It's not. It's, this is a voluntary thing. This is a spirit-led thing. This is not a mandatory thing. This is not thou shalt sell all of thy resources and pulleth them down at the church. This is thou shalt not trust in thy resources for thy security. Thou shalt not find thyself worth in thy resources. Thou shalt not trust in thy resources to sustain you, to make you important. And thou shalt not value them more than your infinitely valuable brother or sister, and thou shalt disadvantage thyself to help that brother or sister as worship to your far more valuable Jesus when you can. So no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And then with great power, we read, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all. And there was not a needy person among them, but why? For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it where? At the apostles' feet, which is tantamount to laying it at the feet of Jesus. These guys are the representatives of Christ. These guys are dispensing of the message of Christ. These guys are being authenticated by Christ with amazing miracles. It's incredible what God is doing in and through these guys. And as we'll see in a second, to lie to these guys are to lie to Christ. So laying it at their feet is like, bringing it to Jesus. These guys are getting up every day and they're saying, good morning, Lord. I do not belong to me. I belong to you. That's a good thing. Here I am. Every moment, every category. What do you want to do with me today? Oh, that person? Yeah, I can help them out. I'll give a little time over here. Yeah. Oh, you, I'm going to interrupt my prayers. I'm my schedule to go pray with this person here. Yep. And as a result of their otherworldly generosity, the gospel is roaring through their city like a wildfire. They laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was then distributed to each as any had need. Julian, who was the last non-Christian emperor of the Roman Empire, who ruled in the early 300s, so a few hundred years after these guys, said this about the spread of Christianity, which he hated and tried to stop and failed. He said, let me tell you why it spread so fast through this empire. He said, Christian success lies in there. How would you complete that? Like you have to plug in a word. What would it be? He says, Christian success lies in their charity to all and their generosity to all. And then he says, they take care not only of their own poor, 
but of ours as well. Bottom line, when we value money differently, when we use it differently, when we handle it differently, when we cling to it differently, the world notices, and when we don't, well, it notices that too. And what happens is that the world assumes that we must worship the same God that it does, and they're not been interested in our God. Life is mission, and that includes our wealth, it includes our possessions, it includes our money, and that's true for all of us, high and low, strata, whatever. All right, so now that Luke has told us all that, he introduces us by name, that's kind of important actually, to a guy who really gets and exemplifies this, and he does it just before he introduces us by name to a man and a wife who absolutely do not exemplify this. He says this in verse 36, that's Joseph, who is also called by the apostles Barnabas. Now, that's kind of awesome, because I don't get the impression that the apostles renamed everyone in the church. But they renamed this guy, sort of after the pattern of Jesus, right? They give new names to certain people. This guy gets the name Barnabas, which is a way cool name. You're thinking, no, I might, my child would slap me if I named them Barnabas. But, but wait, notice what it means. Son of encouragement. This guy was an encouragement in the church in which he belonged, so much so, they renamed him. And now notice what else Luke tells us. He says that Barnabas, the son of encouragement, was a Levite, a native of Cyprus, and that he sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money, meaning all of it, and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, if you're reading this in your personal worship, you need to stop and go, all right, what's the deal with the Levite? Why is he telling us that he's from Cyprus? You know, I mean, how does this play into the story? Because the details always matter. So who are the Levites? Well, when you go back into the pages of the Old Testament, you realize that the Levites came from the tribe of Levi and that the tribe of Levi was the only tribe of all 12 tribes that when the children of Israel came up into the promised land under Joshua and captured the whole of it, The tribe of Levi was the only tribe that did not receive an allotment of land. Land on which to live, land from which to live. This is an agrarian society. No land? Good grief. And they were also the priests. What's specifically noted is that for Levi, the Lord was their inheritance. And that for Levi... They would have nothing and no one but the Lord to look to, to secure them and to sustain them. Now, I want you to pause for a minute. What tribe would you rather be in? Levi or anything with land? Give me any, I don't care. Or Levi? Who was the most privileged? Who was the most secure? Who was the most blessed? Who was the most well-sustained? He's talking about this guy, Barnabas. He's a son of encouragement, like they change his name, okay? He's a Levite who owns land. Wait a minute. But what does he do when he comes to faith in Jesus? He sells his land, he gives the proceeds to the apostles, and he becomes a Levite indeed. One whose inheritance is the Lord his God truly, and one who truly, from that point forward, looks to the Lord for his security for his sustenance, for his identity, for his self-worth. 
And he tells us that he's from Cyprus, I think, just to let us in Fort Lauderdale know that he comes from a town exactly like ours, a seaport town, a very wealthy town, and a town specifically noted elsewhere in the Bible in Isaiah for hoarding its wealth. A place where it matters because it makes you significant, it makes you important, it makes you... Do you know what the New Testament calls us who believe in Jesus? It calls us priests. What is it telling us that we need to do? To trust in the Lord as our inheritance and to make him our security, our sustenance. So Luke says, thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. And then Luke says, but a man named Ananias, and you can hear the contrast, and that's what he's doing. He's comparing these guys. With his wife, Sapphira, sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But when he brought the part of it, he told the apostles, and no doubt everyone else in the church, that he was actually bringing all of it, you know, kind of like Barnabas, and he'd sort of like to have a new name too. So now what then do they treasure, these people, more than Christ? All right, so they treasure their money more than Christ, but what else? Prestige. They want to be thought well of. They want people to think about them the way that people think about Barnabas. But what they don't realize is that in lying to the apostles and to their church, that spirit-filled community, they were also lying to God himself. That was effectively what they were doing, and that's where the plan comes undone if you know this story. Again, Luke says, chapter 5, verse 1, but a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and with his wife's knowledge he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet, claiming to have brought it all. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie, not just to me, but to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? Listen, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? You didn't have to do this. Really? It's not mandatory. Did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? You could bring it all. You could bring some of it. You could bring whatever part of it that you feel like the Lord has laid on your heart to bring. He's saying you didn't have to do this. What you can't do is claim to bring it all and not. Why is it, he says, that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man but to God. And when Ananias heard these words, he dropped dead. He fell down and breathed his last. I'm not going to lie. I got to this passage this week and I thought, okay, I got to find out what some other guys are saying about this. I mean, you know, good grief. So I've got people that I like. So I went, I went to Tim Keller, you know, he's got all of these messages on Acts and he's got some on the first part of what we've studied, but Ananias and Sapphira, nothing. It's like, good grief. John Piper, nothing. I mean, these guys are like my heroes. I love these guys. And I thought, man, you know, maybe they're onto something. (laughs) I'm so glad we didn't skip this story. I really am. There's something here. 
When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard it. And the young men, who were apparently sitting there in the room, no doubt with their jaws on the floor, rose and wrapped him up, carried him out and buried him. And then Luke says, and after an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. So now you're thinking, dun-dun-dun-dun. You know, you know what's coming, don't you? You know what's coming, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much, meaning for this particular price, you know, the one that your husband gave me. And she said, yes, for so much. Wow. It's like getting called into the principal's office when you were a kid. Did that ever happen to you? Because I was a regular. I went all the time. I remember a buddy of mine and I, you know, we got in big trouble. I don't know what we did. It was something stupid, I'm sure. And then, you know, we were both going to go in and we both had a lie. We had a lie. We had our plan worked out. Did you ever do that? Here was the mantra, lie till you die, lie till you die. We said it out loud, lie till you die, man. Don't let them freak you out. Lie till you die. They can't bust us. They don't know the truth. Okay, these guys lied. They actually died. (laughs) Obviously, I didn't know this story back then. Not a good precedent. She comes in. He says, this how much you sold it for? Yeah, yeah, that's exactly how much, she says, looking around furtively for her husband. Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of death are at the door. Think about that. The feet of death, the feet of those who have just buried your husband are at the door right now waiting for you. And they will carry you out too. And immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And when the young men came in, they found her dead and carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. And you say, well, my goodness, you know, what am I supposed to do with that? I mean... Does this mean that if I treasure something, whatever it is, in my heart, more than I treasure Jesus, and I misrepresent myself to you people because, frankly, I don't want you to think less of me as a result, that God's going to strike me dead? I think that's highly unlikely. But I'm not sure that should bring us a lot of comfort. I think this is really a unique occurrence, and Peter is really a unique guy, and he's got a really unique anointing, and something really unique is going on here. But I do think that if that is true for you, or if that is true for me, it will bring some kind of death. I'll give you an example. Pornography is my example. At least the first one. There is no doubt in my mind that there are guys and some ladies as well who are buried in pornography, who are treasuring that addiction, and that's what it is in their hearts more than Christ, and who wear a mask among us. They're living a lie in the midst of this community that God has given it to you to help you because you're ashamed and you're afraid that people will think less of you. I was talking to somebody not too long ago, about two weeks ago, and they said, well, I'm going to tell you this story, but, you know, this is... It's going to be shocking. And I said, you know what, honestly, nothing shocks me anymore. And my commitment to the reform doctrine of the depravity of man and my own understanding even of my own depravity in heart denies me the ability to be stunned by pretty much anything. 
You're buried. And you're isolating. And it's bringing death. Death to you. Death to your own heart and soul. Death to your own estimation of yourself as you drown in shame. Death to intimacy and relationship. It's a big deal. We have resources to help with that, but we can't if you're not willing to be transparent. I think that there are women here today, just to kind of equal it out a little bit, okay, who play the dutiful and loving and respectful wife here and in in truth can hardly stand to look at their husband. Certainly do not respect him. And maybe for good reason. I'm not trying to argue the facts. I'm just stating I think that's the case. And are isolating themselves from the very people that God has surrounded them with to help and from the very resources that God has surrounded them with to help and who treasure in their heart the ability to take out their anger on their husband and do injury to him more than they do the Lord Christ who calls them in worship to him. And sometimes that's the only way it can work to respect their husbands. And I could say the same about men who are called to love their wives as Christ loved the church. And here's the deal. It's bringing death, death to you, death to your husband, death to your children as they're growing up in the midst of this chaos. You can do this with anything or anyone that you treasure more than Jesus. And you then isolate yourself away from this community that God has given you to help you learn to treasure Jesus more than anything or anyone But let's not forget the object lesson for today. Life is mission. It includes our money. And here's what I'm afraid of. I'm afraid that money is not mission for the overwhelming majority of the people in the American evangelical church in particular, and for a lot of us too. And I'm afraid that the gospel is not spreading through our city and through our nation, at least in part, because when the world looks at us, I mean really looks at us, it recognizes that we actually do worship the same God it does. And I think we've got to take that to heart and consider whether we're Levites indeed. It's resulting in death. Death to us as we experience the same futility of materialism that the world experience. Death to our children as we raise in our homes little materialists. And death to the world that we're called to reach who are not really going to be all that interested in hearing about our God if they think that our God is the same one that they already have. Life is mission. And that includes all of our resources and money, okay? So I want to challenge you to do three things. Number one, I want to challenge you to become generous toward God. And I'm going to tell you what that looks like. It looks like tithing. It looks like taking 10% of what you get from God and giving it back to him regularly in worship. And here's why. It's not because he needs it. God is not having cash flow problems. Seriously, he's not, you know, the light bill of heaven is huge. And man, if I can't get that person to, you know. I mean, it's just silly on its face. God commands us to do this because he knows that more than anything else in our lives, we are going to experience the applause of the crowds through achievement, through gaining, through hoarding, through keeping. We're going to be tempted here probably more than anything else to ground our identity and to trust in for security 
this stuff. It's the greatest rival God out there. And so God says, here's what you need to do for your own good. (laughs) With a shaking hand. You need to bring it to me regularly. And say to yourself, Lord, you are my security. Lord, you are my identity. Lord, you are my God. Not this. Not this. Not this. And experience, frankly, the freedom and joy that comes from that. Secondly, I want to challenge you to become generous toward other people. To be looking for opportunities to help folks, both inside the church and outside the church. Again, what did Julian say? He said, look, Christian success lies in their charity and their generosity to all. They don't, only, they don't only just take care of their own poor. They take care of the poor, period. They take care of ours as well. And then lastly, if you're thinking, you know, Tom, I have no margin for any of this. And now you mentioned 10%. And with Ananias and Sapphira, I almost now died too. I would encourage you to do two things. One. Start developing the habit of giving something. And number two, take our financial peace class and figure out why you have no margin. Figure it out. Lay this area before the Lord your God who seeks to help you make your resources a servant of you and a servant of Him through you as opposed to making you a slave and a servant to it. Freedom is here. We sang it. And it's found in the gospel. So I'm going to pray. We're going to show you like a minute long video on the financial peace class. And I hope that you guys will take it to heart and uh, and seriously consider it. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that we have a God who is actually trustworthy Not one who is fickle, not one who is fleeting, not one who is subject to corrupted economies, but Lord, a God who never changes, who has claimed us by the blood of his son, bought us at the most exorbitant price ever and makes us both precious and beautiful. Help us, Lord to find our identity in you and to find the liberty and the freedom that that new identity brings and help us to come to know the joy of generosity, we pray. Do these things for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.